At every ARBA convention, we're greeted by a banner that reads, For five days, you don't have to explain to anyone why you raise rabbits. Our hobby sometimes raises eyebrows. You show what? But once you step inside, you'll discover a world full of passionate, interesting people all working toward the ultimate goal, best in show. What can I do for you? Well, I'm looking for a white rabbit. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. If I were looking for a white rabbit, I'd ask the Mad Hatter. Okay, rabbit, you force me to use force. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice, tumbling down the rabbit hole. Hello and welcome to episode 34 of Best in Show, the only podcast about the show rabbit and show KV industry. I'm your co-host, Bryony Smith, and as every week, I am joined by the multitasking and multi-talented Alan Messick. <laughs> and here I sit in my truck at California State Convention recording a podcast. <laughs> Thank you for that, and about ready to do a quiz bowl for the kids. How are you doing in, in your part of the world? Still cold, but there's an end in sight. It's starting to warm up, and I've got a couple does that are pregnant, so I'm hoping spring is coming. Heck yeah. Pregnant does are always a good sign, especially if they... Well, do Dutch take in the winter? Do you have winter breeding depression with Dutch like other breeds do? Um, I mean, yeah, it, it it's hit and miss. Like I actually did get some litters this fall, which I haven't for the past few years, um, but Dutch... <laughs> They want to breed almost all the time, and and I normally like I was planning to not breed does in February and March because then you get into when they're coming to prime coat, it's a summer and it can get sunburnt. I'd rather have like older juniors for convention, but they were running around on Valentine's Day flipping their tails, and I'm like, okay, girls, it's fine. So <laughs> it must have been a warm day or something. It was warm, and I guess there was something in there. You know, I heard and Joe told me this. You know, he sent me this moon chart, and it's like up to the 16th or something was good days by the moon and, you know, after the full moon and all this. And I'm like, well, either it's that or it's a warm weather or Valentine's Day or a combination of it all. But the girls were frisky that day. So we went with it. Do you believe in that moon stuff? You know, I never really have, but people swear it works. And the interesting thing, you know, I've seen some of those charts and it talks about here's when you get your best bucks and here's when you get your best does. And I think back to the best rabbits I've raised and there's actually some correlation. But then the part of me that was a data analyst for 17 years <laughs> says this is not a big enough sample and correlation does not equal causation. So the jury's still out. I mean, for, for centuries, people thought that the world was flat. So <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm going to continue to be a skeptic, but it would be interesting maybe to, to track some data to see what you saw. And by the way, like, okay, maybe your best ones came from that, or Joe says the best ones come from this moon, but who the heck knows what the best is in nature? I mean, I could see like maybe, maybe more bucks or more does. I might begin to believe that, but the best ones, that's, that's even more far-fetched. Yeah. Um, the, probably the, I think the best Dutch I ever raised was a doe and she was born in a litter of eight in July that's black a big buck litter. or black 
dough to blue buck. The entire litter was blue. There's a one in 256 Hmm. chance of that happening. Um, All eight were blue. She was the only show marked rabbit in the litter. So, I mean, I don't know. What does that tell you about your data? Again, you'd well, have to you'd have yeah. to do some controlled study, and I don't think anyone has. Yeah, when when there's a funding to to get behind that, you know, we'll be the first in line to sign our wraps up for it. <laughs> yes, we will. <laughs> All right. So, uh, what's going on with this episode? We've got uh, some exciting guests from across the world, and they are uh, related to a certain year. And uh, what year would that be? That would be 2006 when they first got into rabbits and joined the ARBA. Very cool. So what was going on in 2006 in the world? In January, NASA launched its New Horizons to planet Pluto. In February, the Winter Olympics were in Torino, Italy. We learned that that's actually what they call it in Italy, not Turin, which is what we normally call (laughs) it in the U.S. because we anglicize everything. Torino is easy enough to say, so I'm going to go with that. Um, we've just, of course, completed another Winter Olympics. At this one, one of the big uh, newsworthy events was American Shani Davis became the first person of African descent to win an individual gold medal in the Winter Games in a thousand meters speed skating. So that was pretty cool. That is very cool. In March, believe it or not, um, this was when Twitter launched the microblogging site that was originally what a hundred and some characters, and it's it's expanded since that. But That's uh, first, really. Hard to believe, 06, because I, my memories of Facebook are like 04, 05, you know, when we were like re- reconnecting with high school, kids we went to high school with. I'm right. surprised Twitter emerged so quickly after that because I'm still not on Twitter. Are you? No, I'm not. Um, like I see stuff from Twitter, um, but no, I'm not on Twitter. I mean, I guess I'm just, I'm old. I'm like an old millennial um, which no, we don't eat Tide Pods. Like our backs <laughs> hurt now. <laughs> you know, everyone that thinks uh, that's that's a Gen Z. Um, I'm with and you. no, I'm I'm a I'm a Facebooker. I have an Instagram. I don't really post there much. I mostly just use it to shop for clothes. <laughs> well, and let's face it, Facebook is is the is the the rabbit family, you know, hub. It's it's been that way for for years. And even the even the young people that probably don't do Facebook at school, if they've got rabbits, they're doing Facebook. Right. And and that's the interesting thing about it, you know, because you hear how, how in the normal world um, about how Facebook is for old people. But but you're right. You know, young people do Facebook because they want to connect with rabbit breeders of all ages. I mean, I have I don't even know how many Facebook friends. I don't count on it. Look every day. I probably gain some, lose some. Who cares? Um, but I would say at least 80 percent, if not more, are rabbit people. <laughs> Me too. All right, what else is going on in 06 besides Twitter? Well, you know, I said that NASA launched the New Horizons to Pluto in January. Um, <laughs> in August, two space, two space things this, this time. Well, it, it kind of correlates. Okay, okay. In okay. August, the International Astronomical Unit defines what a planet was, and this was when Pluto was demoted to dwarf planet status. I remember that. I didn't think it was that long ago. My gosh. I know. Um, so what do you think of that? Is Pluto a planet or not? I mean, I grew up knowing it was a planet. It's, it orbits the sun. I mean, yeah, it's a planet. What about you? Uh, yeah, exactly. Plus Pluto was actually discovered by a Kansan named Clyde Tombaugh. Ah, uh, there, there, there's the bias. <laughs> <laughs> but no, again, I grew up, grew up with Pluto as a planet. Pluto is a planet. Yeah, I'm with you. In November, a painting titled Number 5, 1948 by Jackson Pollock became the most expensive painting in the world. It sold privately for $140 million. Wow. 
And in December, another very newsworthy world event, former Iraqi President Saddam Hussein was executed after a trial. Other notable deaths in 2006 were Coretta Scott King, the widow of Martin Luther King Jr., Don Knotts, who played Barney Fife on The Andy Griffith Show, the famous photographer and journalist Gordon Parks, June Allison, a golden-era Hollywood actress. Um, this one really pulled everyone's heartstrings and still does. Steve Irwin. Oh, that was so weird. That's one of the celebrity deaths. Like, I remember where I was when I heard about it. I was at my grandparents' house, and it was on TV. And it was just, it was unbelievable because, yeah. yeah. He's, he was like an invincible guy. I mean, he was, yeah, he was wrangling Crocs and deep diving with, what were they, uh, stingrays? But he was invincible. Yeah, this, like, nobody's going to kill Steve Irwin, right? Especially yeah. not a wild a animal. Total jerk of a stingray. Yeah. And now he's got um, grandkids. Did you see that? Bindi. Yes. Kids. I like, did. Whoa. You want to talk about feeling old. I know. <laughs> my, my, my lower back was definitely hurting when I saw that. <laughs> James Brown, a pioneering um, rock and roll artist. And the last celebrity death we have for 2006 was Gerald Ford, a former president who is unique among presidents. And do you know why? Uh, because he was Speaker of the House? Because he was never actually elected to the presidency or vice presidency. He was nominated to the vice presidency after the whole debacle with Spiro Agnew, Richard Nixon's first president, and then he became president with the whole debacle with Richard Nixon. Yeah, cool. Um, and he was Californian, correct? I think he was, yeah. Yeah. Was he the last U.S. president to pass away? No, no, we lost George Bush recently. George H.W. Bush. Yes, we did. Yes. All right, so we're going to roll into a listener comment that we got uh, recently. It goes something like this. Just wanted to write and say thank you very much for all of your time and effort with this podcast. I listen every single day as I am slowly catching up. This has brought the love of rabbits back to me. I sold a lot of rabbits in 2017 to get my life rolling, and this podcast has really reminded me how much I miss this hobby. So I went and bought a whole bunch of cages, and I'm going to raise mini lops and try out some Jersey Woolies. Someday I'd love to meet both of you in person. Again, thanks to you both. Hope to have many more years of listening to this podcast. And that comes from Alex McLean in Western Pennsylvania. Such a great comment. And as we see so many of our, we listen to so many of our uh, listener comments, it's, it's great to know that we are inspiring people to stay in rabbits and get back in rabbits and, uh, and keep listening and learning. Uh, just a reminder to like and follow the rabbitry on Facebook that will continue to serve as our hub and whichever podcast platform you listen to us, whether it's Apple, Spotify, Google, or audible, we are on it. Look up best in show, tell your friends, share our posts. And each and every week we will have posts of the current podcast episode for best in show on that Facebook page and links to all former episodes as well. They're up there forever, archived forever. So check them out. There are loads of them. I can't believe we're already on episode 34 and so much more to come here in 2022 as we keep rolling and of course we appreciate your comments and five-star reviews and we will pick one or two every week to read to you guys as our listeners hey alan what do you call that gross buildup that happens in the rabbit's favorite bathroom corner of their cage <laughs> oh i know exactly what you're talking about they are creatures of habit and that of course is the favorite corner to get really disgusting I have Dutch, so I call it buck sludge, and it's a mess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, especially when rabbits molt and the fur clumps into it and it becomes all interwoven. It's the number one cause for rusty failure of cage floors. Try getting to that corner when you're trying to clean it out, and it really is the worst chore I can think of. But I think I found a solution and one that will help save my floors. Oh, Bryony, do tell wise one. So I just received this cool contraption from KW Cages called the Magic Corner Cleaner. It's designed to fit perfectly in that nasty corner with special blades that fit in between the wires and make quick work of removing any built-up debris. I'm now retiring my trusty old screwdriver because I found that it works like magic. (laughs) Well, Brian, you are one to find the biggest and most advantageous ways of figuring things out in our rabbitries. And I've got to get one, too. So just a reminder to listeners that if you're listening and you are totally into this new product that KW is carrying it, uh, check out the KW Cages website. That's kwcages.com. And on purchases over $75, if you use the promo code TheRabbitry, you get $10 off. So uh, order that that scraper. It sounds really great. I've got to get mine. In this episode, we'd like to welcome Bay and Yo from Malaysia. They joined the ARBA in 2006, but fell in love with rabbits in 2004. They have been pioneers in the show rabbit and cavey industry in Southeast Asia and helped to organize the very first show in their home country. Bay and Yo are visiting the United States for three weeks while Bay finishes working under ARBA rabbit judges for his ARBA judge license. We are all hopeful that Bay successfully passes his requirements and becomes Malaysia's very first ARBA judge. Let's welcome Bay and Yo to the podcast. So let's start with the first question like we ask so many of our guests. Why did you get into rabbits and when? We started race rabbit in 2004. And how did you find out about rabbits? You know, was it something that uh, a lot of people in your country were, were doing or was it kind of a new frontier? It's quite new in Malaysia. So usually they have those like mixed breed rabbits. So which is very long ear, very sharp in, sharp, sharp in the face. So we found that the, there's a chance for us to invent in this category. So when you talk about those mixed breed rabbits, mm-hmm. in Malaysia before 2006, there weren't purebred rabbits like we know here in the US? Yes, no. But were rabbits popular as house pets even though they were mixed breeds? Would it be common for a household to have a pet rabbit even though it's not maybe a Hallenlop or a Netherland Dwarf? At the early stage, um, it's not popular in Malaysia. So basically, Malaysian they like to keep dogs and cats and hamster. So slowly we import a Netherlands dwarf at the first import. Slowly we introduce to Malaysian, then they love it. How did uh, yo when when you first brought those Netherlands dwarfs over? Were they some of the first purebred rabbits that that you had seen in Malaysia? Most probably, yes, because we couldn't see any purebred dwarf in Malaysia at the time. So how do you discover purebred rabbits? I mean, if you ask the average American here that isn't into showing rabbits or into the purebred side of things, most people don't even know purebred rabbits exist. So how did you come to discover purebred show rabbits? Oh, actually that we are using very limited um resources because the internet line is really bad like in 16 years ago so then we just using we just browse through the websites and then articles go through the online and we managed to email a few breeders in the states and someone replied us and 
that's how we start our import from the States. Were you surprised to find out that there were not only purebred rabbits, but also something called show rabbits? Actually, that it, during the first import, we don't really talk about the show rabbit, you know. So then it just like more to the purebred rabbit. It turns out it's a bit different from the show rabbit we know as at today. And when you imported those first purebred rabbits, did they come from show breeders that were showing rabbits back here in the U.S.? Yeah, the rabbits from show breeders. So they sent us about six Netherlands dwarf orange variety, which is a very, 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 a very good. So since then we start to look into the show rabbits. And why did you look at Netherlands dwarfs as the first breed? Was there something about that breed that was attractive to you, or did you think that they would be popular, um, you know, as as pets in Malaysia? Because we are looking for the smallest breed, because Asian people, they like small breed rabbits. And as you've probably seen, uh, both of you being here in the United States, orange Netherland dwarfs are not the most popular color. So uh, why orange back in those days when you were looking at rabbits in 2006? Because Asian people, they like those light color, like orange, like opal, those color. So that's why we pick orange as a first first variety that we import. So back then, showing rabbits was not your main objective. It was simply to bring purebred, small breeds of rabbits to, to Malaysia, correct? Yeah, at the early stage, yes. But later on, then we found that there's more variety, more better in the body types, all that. Then slowly we import more, I mean, the better types of rabbits. Was it hard to understand back then what good quality Netherland dwarfs looked like? Or did you figure out pretty quickly by looking at photos on the internet uh, what good quality looked like? Yeah, we've, after we did the first import, then only we go for more detail, then more research on the internet, articles, then slowly we know that actually they have bad, I mean, better types, better look, good looking show type rabbits. And did you notice that orange Netherland dwarfs are, did you find out pretty quickly they're, they're a challenging variety even for us here in the US? Yes, very challenging variety. And do you still have orange Netherland dwarfs today? Yes, we have, still have. What's, after all these years now that you've been involved and seen so many different breeds, what's your favorite breed today? Today is still Netherland dwarf and Hollandop. And when did you start importing Hollandops to Malaysia? Same year, 2006, but it's the later shipment. And as you both know, and we know here in the U.S., tort is the dominant color on the Hollandop scene, but it's, it's not necessarily the, the most unique, right? So uh, back then, was it challenging to, to like tort, or did you, were you attracted to tort in the beginning? At the beginning, we, we import tort and colors. So at the early years, we bring a lot of color Holland Lops. Then we found that the tort color is, I mean, it has better body types. It's better, I mean, it's much way, I mean, better than the color Holland Lops. So then we slowly, we slow down the color Holland Lops, then we're more focused on the tort color Holland Lops. 
And yo, back then when you brought those first purebred rabbits over from the U.S. in both Netherlands, Wharfs, and Hollands, how did you get the word out amongst Malaysian people that there were these things called purebred rabbits? Was it was it hard to market or you know promote them? What was it like in those days to show people what what purebred rabbits look like? Oh, that time is really a hard time because the sell, the the mixed breed rabbit is selling about fifty ringgit at a time for one. But we import like we need to spend about two thousand for one. So then, at first we just market the rabbit, the purebred rabbit by selling like about four hundred ringgit for one that time. But the demand is not there because like everyone is thinking we are crazy that the rabbit is selling at four hundred, no fifty, and now become five hundred. Although that they see the difference, but not many people can accept this. So we take really many years to like educating them and like tell them more about the show rabbits and the purebred rabbits. And just to give the audience perspective, since most of our audience is in the U.S., uh, if a, a, a non-purebred rabbit there costs 50 ringgits, what is that in U.S. dollars? If like 50 is about, because last time the rate is about three, so then it should be $15. So back in the day, an average pet rabbit that was mixed breed in your country was $15. And here you come in with these Holland Lops and Netherland Dwarfs that are worth around 2,000 ringgit. So back then, what, was, what were they worth in U.S. dollar? If 2,000 should be about $600, that's the price including the shipping from U.S. to Malaysia. And everyone thought in Malaysia you guys were crazy for trying to charge that. Yeah, exactly. But because they don't know that how much we paid for the purebred rabbits and the shipping as well. Yeah, the shipping is probably just as expensive as, as the rabbits, right? It's it's almost half of the expense. Yeah, yeah. Because last time we used, because they have a minimum weight for each shipment. So then probably we need to pay about like six, at least $600 for the shipping. And back then, I know now we'll talk about this, you actually own a, a line of pet stores that are dedicated just to rabbits. But back then, did you have, were you in the pet store industry? So at first, we are breeding rabbit. Then slowly, we evolve in the rabbit products, rabbit food and hay. So we we distribute our own brand rabbit foods and also the Oxbow Animal Health in Malaysia. Then slowly, since year 2020, so we start our own, uh, own pet store. So now in 2022, that means this year, so we open up our second rabbit shops. So basically just selling our own breeding rabbit and also our own products. That's pretty unusual for Americans to, to kind of wrap their head around. I remember when I went to Japan for the first time and I was visiting rabbit only pet stores and I thought, oh my gosh, this is, this is amazing and also very bizarre. <laughs> but there were a lot of people a lot of Japanese people that were interested and it sounds like the same thing is going on in Southeast Asia, right? Yeah, because actually like a lot of pet owners that, not to say they don't like cats or dogs and because rabbits are very fragile, so then they're afraid of the dog barking, so then they feel not comfortable when they bring the rabbit out to the pet store with the dogs in it. So then they will prefer to come to the, like the small shop like with just only rabbits or just only small animals. This one is what why that we have our own just rabbit or guinea pig shop. So why do rabbits make sense as pets in Southeast Asia? Let's talk about Kuala Lumpur, for example. It's, it's a major city, right? So 
do rabbits make sense more as pets in the big city versus maybe a dog or cat or otherwise? Um, actually, because in Malaysia, we don't have, we were getting more and more high-rise building. So then a lot of management, they don't allow them to keep cats and dogs because they will make noise and will make mess. So then they were more prefer those that are quiet, small animals. So then even though they keep in the condo, but no one knows. So then that's make the small animal become more popular. How do, if you say to the average American, for example, that doesn't have rabbits, or maybe they do have a pet rabbit. If you say show rabbits, like what do you do on the weekend? I'm like, oh yeah, I show and judge rabbits. They kind of roll their eyes like, wait, what, what do you do? You know. So what was it like to introduce show rabbits to Malaysians? Were they were they like oh I want to do that or were they like oh, that's that's a, a, show rabbit is a very new hobby by that time, so they they just come in to show they import and they breed and then breed locally and then they join the shows, so actually the the show rabbit is the hobby is quite popular during the year two thousand ten two thousand eleven until about two thousand fourteen. Remember, I, I went to Southeast Asia for the very first time in 2011 to Singapore for Rabbits in the City. And that was a, a rabbit event. It was not sanctioned, but it was really the first event in Singapore that showcased show rabbits. And that was kind of a catalyst or a, you know, an instigator for purebred rabbits because it was a year of the rabbit, the Chinese New, New Year of the rabbit. In June of that same year, Malaysia held the very first rabbit show. We are there just to show the rabbits. So I think that we probably we bought 50 to 60 rabbits. And I think there were only maybe 150 rabbits in the whole show. And so a third of them were, were from you guys. And what was it like to experience the very first rabbit show that you could you know, show these rabbits that at that point you had had for five years? What was it like to show your rabbits for the very first time? Okay, actually before the shows, we are very excited then actually we don't know how is the process from A to Z. So we Google a lot from the YouTube, see how's the you American show. I mean, I, I mean the, 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 I mean, how to process the procedure from, from how we enter the coops, how the, the judge going to evaluate, how to make the placings, everything. So, but on that day, it's quite a bit, a bit messy because we are very first times, so everybody is like, actually don't know what to do on that on the first day. So luckily, you and Randy were there, so to guide us to run the, the I mean, to kickstart the show. I have two vivid memories of that morning. First of all, it was the the sorting of the comment cards, and there were we were literally sitting on the floor uh, in like this little back office surrounded by uh, pipe and drape, you know, the the curtains, and there were. Uh, carbon copy hand printed comic cards just scattered all over the floor and, and we were all trying to figure out how to put them in order and then okay once and no judging table at, and you have to judge on the cage if I'm not mistaken right that was going to be my second memory was that uh, <laughs> <laughs> the rabbits were in I think they were in cat cages yes and they were they were lined up around the room on tables and, and I'm, I'm looking at Randy and he's looking at me and we're like, so where do you think we're going to judge these rabbits? And then uh, I think some like uh, fake turf grass came out and you guys rolled it out on top of the cat cages. And, and we... Yeah, I'm not 
mistaken, it's a carpet on the cage. Then you have to move the carpet around the cage and you have to judge on the, on the cage. Yeah, we had to take every single rabbit out, look at it, and we, you know, we, we spent more time than we do here, as you've probably experienced since you've been in the U.S., and, and then there wasn't a table to, you know, evaluate, you know, multiple rabbits at one time. So it was like, okay, I have to, you know, you, we, we was huge. Asala Senior Puck ended up winning Best in Show that day. Actually, it was uh, twice Best in Show. But I remember going through that class. I know, there was like 20 or something. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I can only look at one at a time. Um, was, that, was that interesting for you guys to watch? And did you actually know that that was not standard procedure for showing rabbits? No, actually, that time we are not so familiar with all how the procedure goes. And the way that they arrange their table is a bit strange, that we are far away from the judge. So then we have no way and we have no chance to listen to what the judges say, comment on the rabbit at all. And yeah, that's our first, first experience in the first Abba Rabbit show in Malaysia. So after that experience, which you, you know, you didn't get to actually watch the judging very much. I do remember that, that there weren't a lot of people around in our area while we were judging. Um, what on earth made you decide to keep doing this? If, if you couldn't listen and you, wasn't, you weren't sure what was going on, why, why did you go back and have more shows after that? So the following year in 2012, so we improved a lot on the, I mean, we improved the new judging set, dummy judging group, that, I mean, the more proper judging tables, all that. So then we set, a, I mean, a, just a, a evaluation table, which is the exhibitor just can stand in front of the table and hear to the judge commands and then have more interactions between exhibitor and the judges. And was that a good experience for, for you as well because you got to listen more? And, and how did the other exhibitors like that experience compared to the very first show? Did they appreciate being closer to the judge and able to listen? Yes, because they, they can ask directly to the judge, then the judge can show them what is the DQ, what is the good point of the rabbit, what is the I mean, the weak point of the rabbit, then, then they can learn more. Mm. So let's backtrack a second. Uh, the ARBA was the first show in Malaysia for show rabbits. Why did Malaysia, and I know you weren't directly involved in that very first show, you were exhibitors, but why did Malaysia choose the ARBA as the model for showing rabbits? Why didn't you pick the European system or pick your own system? We found that the American ARBA systems, they have better looking rabbits, breeds, and the, the standard is um, more, how to say, it's tight, correct, more organized, then every breed is, is how to say, is uh, listed on the SOP and like everything state uh, clearly stated in the SOP so then we just follow that will be because actually previously we have everything that to follow the standard of the British standard mm, but those rabbit not the one that we like the most so then that's why that we choose to follow ARBS standard instead of the British standard so in in the BRC, that's British Rabbit Council. There are, you know, there have been shows in England for longer than they have existed here in the U.S. 
and they have a lot of the similar breeds. They have Netherland Dwarf, right? And they have Holland Lops. They call them Mini Lops. But when you're looking back in those days and you're getting, getting started, what was the difference between, say, the Holland Lop of England, which is called a Mini Lop, and the Holland Lop of the U.S.? What was, what was different that was more attractive to you? So, for example, like U.S., they have a shorter body and they're more compact. And the way they pose is like Holland Lop in U.S. is, is high-mounted. But for the British, we found that it's slightly longer in the body, low head mount, but they have a very great head and ears. But the body, we, we, we prefer the, the American style. So once you got going with ARBA style, how did you find the ARBA? Were we as Americans in the ARBA welcoming to the, the movement of, of show rabbits in Southeast Asia? Did you find it easy to communicate with us and the ARBA? Yes, because American... I mean, a lot of breeders in America, they, they are very friendly. So once, I mean, at a very, very early stage, we email. So the only the American breeder who reply our email. How did Facebook change what you were doing there? Did Facebook help you to communicate with breeders here in the U.S. and across the world and help you in your understanding of, of what rabbits should look like? Did it help to show good examples of the breeds, for example? Yes, because Facebook, they have like an instant message reply and then they're very easy for, for us to, to see at the videos or photos that the breeders that they post on the Facebook. And then and the most important is the, the message part. So we can get re- reply very quickly. And let's talk about language in your country. For example, a lot of our Listeners may not be familiar with, with Malaysia. Um, what, is, what is your first language? Okay, Our first language is Malay. And the second language majority they are using is Mandarin and Cantonese. So actually, we, we are not very good in English. So we, we face difficulty in actually to understand the, the SOP, which is stated in the SOP. So that's why we need a lot of shows. We need a lot of uh, good judges. So to actually to teach us what, what is the, I mean, the standard of each breed. I think your English, both of you, is very good. And anyone that's met you over the last two weeks here in the U.S. will say, yeah, they and you speak really good English. Do you think your English has improved since you've been in Rabbits? Mm, I think improved more in these two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, actually that we learn a lot. Actually that um, we learn more about the rabbit is after the first ABBA show in Malaysia. So because then, although that we bring, we brought like 50 to 60 rabbit during the show, but we don't have any big wins during that show, we are not mistaken. So then that makes us really think what's wrong with our herd. Although that we have been breeding for five years. That's why we go through our, all the rabbits, then we call half of the herd. After that, according to the standard, then only we start to realize that what we can do to make it better and to make it like we can produce a, good, a better rabbit. Was that hard to do to, you know, be discouraged after the first show? Or, or did you accept the challenge as like, okay, this is what we've got to do if we're going to be competitive? It's like... um. 
yeah, we can see the challenge after that. And we want to take the challenge and want to be the first and the best breeder, one of the best breeders in Malaysia. How did other, other breeders respond? You guys took it and said, okay, I'm going to do better. I'm going to go home and, and breed differently and, and make better according to the standard. Were other breeders as responsive or did they get discouraged and say, you know, this is not for me? Some of these, I mean, they, they, I mean, when they lose for sure, they feel discouraged. Some are, are very good. They, they import better, I mean, the better genetics to upgrade their herd. And if we go to Malaysia shows today, we still see some of those first people that were, were there at those first shows. Like Jafar, I think he was one of the, the early guys to, to, to show rabbits. Jafar from Malacca. Jafar, yes, we we call him Jafar, <laughs> just like uh, Kama. You know, I, I still can't pronounce his full name, but we, we call him Kama here in the U.S. and he's 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 a well-known guy across a lot of us because he communicates with so many American breeders, and his English has definitely improved since <laughs> since he's been doing all this. Um, so, if the the movement started in Malaysia, right? There were already shows in in Thailand uh, before that, right? But then from Malaysia, we moved on to Indonesia. About a year later, we had the first show in Malaysia, or sorry, in Indonesia. Singapore had a show or a couple shows. And then we've moved on. Now we've got shows in Philippines. So what would you recommend as pioneers and rabbits in literally a world away from us? If there were countries that were interested in showing rabbits, what would you recommend to them? If, they, if there were people that wanted to raise rabbits, say, I don't know, let's, let's use maybe India, for example. Uh, what would you recommend to them, knowing what you know now? How would they how would they go about learning more and and maybe starting shows of their own? Are there websites that you find useful? I mean, today the internet is much better, correct? So, uh, where would people turn to for good information? ARBA website or British Rabbit Council or YouTube? What do you use today now, for example, to to learn more? Okay, actually, to learn more now is still go to the ARBA website and also based on the SOP and then and break. <laughs> All right, Bay, so let's talk about why you are here in the U.S. Uh, for these three weeks. Oh, it's, these three weeks. Okay, these three weeks. This is my first time to U.S. So actually to complete another six more judge assists in the shows. So actually this process has been dragging for three years. I supposedly to complete it by year 2020, but because of the pandemic, so the border closed, so we can't travel all the way from Malaysia to, to US. Well, let's go back for a second. You and Masako from Japan took your test together because there's an Airbnb rule if you're going to test for a judge license you have to test with at least one other person, right? And the Airbnb judge test had never been given in Malaysia or in Asia for that matter until you and Masako. So Masako flew all the way down from Osaka, Japan to join you in this quest to become a judge. What was it like taking the test? The test, the test is really, really tough, but luckily we have um, uh, uh, Melissa and Alan to organize a, a one-day seminar so to help us to revise all the SOP uh, for each breed 
So luckily, we passed the test. Did you find studying difficult? And did you have any idea what to even study for? Actually, it's hard for us to to imagine. So the the descriptions in the SOP because not many breeds available in Malaysia. So some breeds even I I, I never bit before. So we just try to imagine as hard as possible to understand it, to memorize it. That's a good point. How many rabbit breeds would you imagine are common in Malaysia from the ARBA side? Or what breeds are they? What, what, what breeds are popular there? And what breeds had you never seen before? Never seen before? Or available, only available? I mean, it's available in Malaysia. It's not many. For example, the popular breed like Netherland Dwarf, Holland Lock, Minerax, and then uh, Dwarf Auto, not many. So, some Rex, I seen once only, a few years back, many years back. And then a very little English Lock, and then what else? Flemish Giant, and then that's it. Not many. So you had never seen a Beverin or an American Chinchilla? Never. So American Chinchilla, Beverin, so I only see it in US show. So you're taking a test on 50 breeds. Well, at that point, it was I think it was 49 breeds. But on 49 breeds, a more, majority of which you had never seen before. Yes, yes. I think more than 40 breeds I never seen before. <laughs> so you only know them in paper? Yes, yes. <laughs> I have seen quite numbers of breed after I took my judges test then I do my very second assist with Melissa in Philippines so by that time I saw 49 breeds yes all 49 breeds at the Philippines show yeah the Philippines have been really uh, proactive about importing all of the different breeds and some of the most uncommon breeds even here in the US, you got to see in the Philippines, um, maybe not very many, but there were at least an example of each. And so let's just summarize for listeners that may not know the licensing procedure. You have to be a member of the ARBA for at least five years. Uh, You have to, sorry, three years. You have to become then an ARBA registrar, which you did. And you accomplished all of your registrar um, registrar requirements in Southeast Asia, correct? Yes, all in Malaysia. So I got my test in 2012, so I passed it and then registered rabbits or that. But the hope, because not many shows available in Malaysia, maybe two shows only per year. So that's why I dragged until 2014, only I completed the four assists. So it took that long just to finish, just the, the three assists for judge and then the one assist for the registrar. So when it came time for your eight judges to do for your judge license, you did one in Philippines. One in Philippines, the second one in Malaysia. So the rest of the six just com- I mean, will be completed by end of this week in Cal State. So, um, you know, we're recording this podcast at Kathy Grove's house. And uh, there's, a, there's another uh, pretty well-known Southeast Asian rabbit person that's, that is a frequent... Uh, frequent visitor to this house and to our area, and that's Ari, Ari Wardhani. She was the first Arabia judge licensed in Southeast Asia and actually in all of Asia, the native-born 
Um, and have you met Ari and have you uh, worked with her a little bit? Yeah, we have been met since many years ago. If not mistaken, is in year 2013. Did Ari inspire you to get your license at all? Yes. Yes. And she's in Indonesia. Yeah. But does she fly to Malaysia to judge shows? Quite frequent. A few times. So why did you decide to get your judge license? Mm, actually, why I get my judge license? <laughs> okay, it's because actually, mm, can't actually. Okay, once you get through the judge license, the first thing is you need to pass the written test and the oral test. So this is very important. So, but for me, you want to pass the, the test. You, I need to study a lot and learn a lot in detail for each breed. So actually this one will help me to understand the breed that I, I, I love. Like for example, like Holland Lock, Netherlands Dwarf, Dwarf Auto. So I know the, I mean, the directions in breedings, what should I cull, what should I keep, what to improve. So. so you incorporated a lot of what it means to be a breeder first before you decided to get your judge license, correct? Correct. So I need to be a good breeder to understand about the breeds. Then only you can go for the exams to pass it, to go through all the judges assist, then to get the license. So why did you want to become a judge? Why, why did you say, okay, it's time for me to take this test? You're a registrar since 2012. So it's been, it was like eight years at that time when you decided to take the test. What made you decide to apply and become a judge? So because there's no judge in Malaysia or Southeast Asia, only Indonesia, RE have the judge license. So that's why in Southeast Asia, there's a very limited sanctioned show. So actually, if I get, I, if I get the license, Actually, we can organize more ARBA sanctioned show in Malaysia than to encourage our Malaysian local breeder to breed more rabbits, breed better rabbits, and then only this happy hobby can be expanded. So, Bay, what was it like to work your shows over the last couple of weeks in the US? What was it like, first of all, to, to enter a rabbit show? an ARBA show in the US. This is the first time you've done that. What was it like to, to be in the showroom? Well, there's huge numbers of entries. Uh, normally in Malaysia, the number of entry of rabbits normally around 100 to 150. But in US, a small show, simply you can get 200 to 250 rabbits per show. So for me, it's, for me, it's a very big show. And what was the first show you worked in the U.S. when you arrived uh, just a couple weeks ago? What was the very first show you worked and who did you work under? Okay, the very first I worked under Mr. Alan Barr, so which is in the Sandy show. So it's a very good experience and learn a lot. So because there's a, a few breeds that uh, I never met before in Malaysia. Like what, what breed did you work with um, in that, at that Santee California show under Alan Barr that you had never... Uh, experience before? For example, the Britannia Petit. So, and, uh, the Britannia Petit? Yeah, Britannia Petit. And then the Rex, the standard Rex. 
and then some like um, Argenta Brun. Yeah, those are, those are very. I mean, this is my first time to handling, evaluate, to learn how to evaluate these breeds. Was it fun to work with breeds you had never otherwise seen? Was it fun to work with them for the very first time? Yes, it's very fun because they are totally different from each other breeds. So they have their own special, their own. I mean the, I mean the, the points. For example, some like the meat type rabbits, like New Zealand's, Californians. So the way to evaluate is different for the fancy breed like dwarf, Holland. The way to to evaluate is different. So we learn. I learned a lot. And then after the Santee California show, we traveled together to the Arizona State Convention. And you worked three shows in a row, a Friday night show, all day Saturday, and all day Sunday. That's a lot even for us uh, regulars here in the U.S. How was it like for you to work that weekend in Arizona three days in a row? Were you, were you really tired at the end? Um, actually, not really tired, but it's very exciting. So we can meet a lot of the good breeders, very nice um, I mean, very good rabbit. We just, for example, the hollow log is very good. The Britannia pet is very good. The rag is very good. So, actually, that day I can I can handle the I mean the very good quality rabbit. So it helped me to memorize how good is it. So next round when I evaluate the same breed, so I can recall back to memory what is called a very nice. I mean, a very good. Hololog, how it's supposed to be, very good. Mm, for example, lion head, how it's supposed to be. So it helped me to, I mean, to get a better evaluating. And you have, at this point, you have two shows left until all of your assists are done, and you're going to finish those two shows at the California State Convention, and that's before you go home. As you are working your last two shows, in your mind right now, what do you hope to accomplish? Because you've already worked uh, six shows. In your last two shows, you've learned so much and you've worked with a lot of different breeders and judges and breeds. In your mind, when you're going into this last weekend, what do you really want to focus on? And, and that's going to be advice and, and your, your words are going to be good words for others that are pursuing licenses wherever they are in the world. What, what do you want to accomplish this weekend in your last two shows? This coming weekend, actually, I need to overcome my weakness. So the so first thing is the speed for evaluate evaluate the, the rabbit. The second is the, com, I mean, to give comment parts. So because uh, this very limited vocab vocabulary that in my mind. So I just use the very simple words to describe. So but in this coming weeks, I hope that I will have more improvement on the comments part. Very good. All right, well, we've kept you guys long enough, and uh, we've got some good dinner here that we're going to have tonight, so we're going we're gonna to say goodbye. But before we do that, we ask all of our guests on our podcast if they could think about their very perfect rabbit show, whether it's happened or not, and I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you both, but yo, you first. If you could imagine your perfect day at a rabbit show, what would it be like? Perfect. Yeah, perfect, meaning was it fun? Did you see your friends? Did you see lots of different breeds? Imagine, or in Malaysia, maybe the comment cards weren't all over the floor and you, and, and you weren't judging on cat cages. <laughs> um, what would it be like if you went to a rabbit show and you're like, you know what, this was, a really, this was a really good day. What would it be like for you? Basically now, actually after like 10 years joining all the shows, 
for a show, I would I would rather to meet all our friends, all the rabbit breeders, and it's like win or lose is not a matter to me anymore. You know, I would rather to spend all my time talking to them. You know, like because we seldom meet each other. So then we we're talking about like what breed you are breeding now. So then what are the problem that you're facing now? How you overcome that? And you know, we we can talk a lot and we can talk whole day. And like the judging is, you know, it's like a second thing for yours. <laughs> so then now like friends is like more 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 for us actually for a show. And I know you've had some homestays while you were here in the United States. You stayed with Nat Fuller first, and then you stayed with Nicole Brockredi in San Diego. And Nicole happened to tell me that one day last week, you guys talked for about 12 hours straight. And I'm sure it was about rabbits. (laughs) So you got your fill, right? Oh, we talk about rabbits a lot, and we talk about the judges as well. (laughs) (laughs) That's also one of our favorite subjects, isn't it? (laughs) Oh, so Ellen would be one of the topics as well. (laughs) I think Nicole was sharing some very ancient photos of me, as she loves as she loves to do. So, Bay, if uh, like Yo describe, what would what would your really great day or perfect day at a rabbit show be? Mm, to see a very good specimen for each breed. So the first thing, because I need to keep on capture the good one in my mind to read to to memory. Then the second is the the most important is the the breeders in Malaysia is keep on increasing so they can I mean more breeders more fun that's it well good luck Bay on your on your last two shows uh, when I was getting my license I, and looking back on all the years I've been in rabbits some of the most fun times for me were those eight shows when I got to work under judges because you know there's nothing like it and you only get eight shows unfortunately I wish I wish sometimes we had more opportunities to work under judges and then you know be transparent like you and I last weekend you know what, what was going on the judging was very very transparent the audience we had a pretty good audience especially during that Rex judging for example because we were more uh, you know in discussion about the rabbits than you know my thought processes and your thought processes were were out in the open yeah. so I and, and that's exactly like Yo said she likes to do that with her friends at the rabbit shows it's just talk talk rabbits yeah rabbit talk rabbit talk the whole day <laughs> <laughs> and uh, one last question do you have plans to come back to the US because I, I know a lot of us would love to see you guys again yes yeah most probably we will come back on this October for convention excellent so we've got we've got you guys hooked alright Bay and Yo, thanks for joining us again Bay. good luck on becoming Malaysia's first ARBA licensed rabbit judge thank you very much so we'll come back again yeah same hopefully to see you very soon Alan, that was a great interview. I always love hearing from our international friends. Um, As you know, and as anyone who's been on my Facebook knows, I have made a few trips to Malaysia. And it's just, it's humbling. It's it's really wonderful to see people um, so excited about the hobby, so eager to learn and to realize that everything that they do to be involved it takes so much more work and investment than what we do here. You know, you can't just go to a show every weekend and pick some new rabbits up. You know, it takes a lot of planning and, you know, expense to ship those over if they're importing them. Um, it's really inspiring. It's part of the best part of our hobby. I totally agree. And uh, the really cool stuff is that they are choosing the ARBA to continue with their rabbit and KV shows there. And hopefully after this trip, Bay will return to Malaysia, an ARBA licensed judge, and continue to promote rabbits and KV's there in the Airbnb. Yes, I know that he will. So 
instead of rabbits this time, I wanted to do a little history um, and education about Malaysia because the last time I was there, I got to visit the Royal Museum, which is a former palace, and um, our friends Isan and Aisha arranged that and explained to me a little bit about Malaysia's government, so I wanted to share that with our listeners. Um, Malaysia is somewhat like Britain. Um, it is a federal parliamentary elected constitutional monarchy. Um, that means that they have a king who's the head of the state, but he is elected, unlike Britain's. They have a prime minister, and they have upper and lower houses, um, like parliament or even like the U.S. with the House of the Senate. So the king is elected from what's called the Conference of Rulers, and those are the nine hereditary rulers of Malay states. There are actually 13 states, but only nine of them have hereditary rulers and are therefore qualified to sit on this Conference of Rulers. Seven of those are hereditary monarchies that are based on what's called agnatic primogeniture. And that's kind of what we're used to, um, at least because we hear about a lot, um, a lot about the monarchy from Britain. What that means is that the title passes to the firstborn son down the male line um, of the current monarch. Um, you know, it would skip females and um, it would just go to the sons in line and then any brothers would be um, after those sons. So that's kind of what we've seen, like with Prince Harry in the UK, his place in line has fallen after um, Prince William's sons were born. In another state, the throne rotates among three branches of the royal family based on what's called agnatic seniority. And that's a little bit of a reversal. So, um, one generation will get the chance to hold the title before the next generation. So the king's younger brother would ha be in line before his children. Um, and then another one is an elective monarchy with the ruler elected from the male members of the royal family. So those are all hereditary. So those nine sit on the Conference of Rulers. A kings are elected from this conference for a five-year term, and this rotates among the rulers. Um, once one has been elected king, they can't stand for election again until all of the others have, which given that there's nine of them and it's a five-year term, that's kind of unlikely that someone would have a second term as king. This system was established in 1957 when Malaysia gained independence from Great Britain. And it got off to an interesting start. Um, it was originally based on seniority. And the first um, candidate put up was the oldest member. He was a sultan of Johor, but he declined this nomination due to his age. He was 84 at the time. The next oldest um, was a sultan of Pahang, but he was rejected by the others. Um, his track record of having relationships and marriages with actresses and cabaret dancers was seen as somewhat unseemly for a king. Not a lot has changed. <laughs> um, and finally, the third oldest, um, Abdul Rahman of Najiri Simbalan, was elected as the first king. He was the third oldest and uncontroversial. And now they follow a de facto, de facto election order to rotate the office between the hereditary heads of their states, which would be, you know, kind of equivalent to a hereditary governor in the U.S. But I found all that really interesting. I think it's wonderfully fair and democratic. And, you know, it, it's just, it's interesting to learn about government in different parts of the world. Totally. I did not know all that. And I've been there like you, uh, you know, a bunch of times. I love going there. Have you ever been to Putrajaya, the capital of Malaysia? Yes, I have. Isn't that just like, it's, it's beautiful, modern, but majestic. And what's really interesting is it's 
rather new capital. They they moved the capital, I believe, from Kuala Lumpur, which is the largest city in Malaysia, and because they kind of outgrew the government offices and built literally. I mean, it's it's a it's a Muslim country, but it feels like the Taj Mahal. I mean, one of the buildings I'm repassing is like insane. I actually judged a rabbit show in Putrajaya. And the organizer of the show was part of a pet expo. His name was Khalid bin Rashad, and he's a cat breeder. And speaking of kings, he actually takes care of the king's cats every week. Oh, wow. Yeah, um, you're right. Pucha Drya is fairly new. And um, I, I went there. It was kind of like after hours. We just walked around a little bit. All the offices were closed. But um, as our friend Isan has said, it's a developing country, and it's very new and innovative. So there's a lot of... Um, you know, reference and respect for history of the country, but there's also a really innovative spirit and a willingness to kind of move things forward and improve them and honor the past while being, you know, very progressive. You're making me really miss Malaysia right now and some curry puffs. (laughs) Oh, I know. And um, Rodi Chennai. If you say durian, I'm hanging up right now. (laughs) No, 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 no. I I can pass on the durian, but some satay, nasi goreng. Um, yeah, those were my first trip to Malaysia and Indonesia because there's nothing quite like your first trip. You know, you're discovering everything for the first time. Um, was in 2013. I had a week in Malaysia and then a week in Indonesia and it was, you know, truly two of the best weeks of my life. Um, I remember talking to Chris Zimney before I went and she said, I cried when I left and I did too. <laughs> it was just, you know, the people are wonderful. The, it's my kind of weather. It's warm. The food is good. Um, just the hospitality, the love for rabbits, the pride in what they're doing. Um, the wonderful things that you get to see. It was, it was wonderful. Definitely you one of the best it. times of my life. And their energy, you know, it's like, it's it's like being in rabbits for the first time again because they're so excited to learn more and so excited to have you there. They're so honored. I mean, we are treated like royalty and we're very lucky people to to have been there. And gosh, I can't wait to go back. Oh, me too. Me too. Post-COVID, um, yeah. Uh, you know, I've compared it a lot of times to 4-Hers and that's not derogatory at all. It doesn't mean that not people are childish. It's just that level of excitement and enthusiasm and love for the hobby and people are like sponges and and it's contagious you know you go to shows in the US and i mean let's be honest it's it's easy to get you know a little jaded or a little burned out at times when you've done a lot of shows you've kind of been run ragged exhibitors complain about petty things and here you know if there are issues or hiccups at the show people just smile and go through it cuz they're there for the love of the hobby it's so true it's so true yeah Ah, this pandemic needs to end. <laughs> I know. It, it's it, we're lucky that that Bay and you were able to get their visas, and it, it took a lot of work for them to get to, approval to even travel to this country to finish that license. So, very proud of them and all their work. All right. Well, I think that wraps up episode thirty-four. Uh, really fun one. Always great to have uh, guests visiting the United States, and even better, even better when we can get them in person. And just a reminder to like and follow the Rabbitry on Facebook. That will continue to serve as our hub for the Best in Show podcast. Episode links from the past, the current ones, and loads more to come will be found there on the Rabbitry. So make sure to share those posts that we put every week with our guests and uh, and updates. And uh, also big thanks to KW Cages for sponsoring this podcast. A reminder to get $10 off on your next order through kwcages.com for orders over $75 with the promo code, the Rabbitry. All right, Brian, you got a quote for us? 
I do. This one is from Condoleezza Rice. It is, people who end up as first don't actually set out to be first. They set out to do something they love. And I love that. All right, everyone. Talk rabbits and talk cavies. See you next time. While this podcast would not be possible without the American Rabbit Breeders Association, it does not constitute an official communication of the association. The information, viewpoints, and opinions expressed herein are those of the hosts and our guests and are not endorsed by the ARBA. To learn more about the ARBA, please visit www.arba.net.